So hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Beyond the Cover. I'm your host, John Robb. Unfortunately, my co-host, Jeff Ayers, is unable to be with us tonight. But we have an absolutely fantastic interview. For the first time, we're able to, going to be able to bring you none other than best-selling author J.A. Jans, and she is going to be talking about her latest book, number 19, in her Brady uh, series called Missing and Endangered. Uh, it's a very riveting story, this one is. So uh, we're very excited to talk to J.A. about that in a second. First, we want to remind everybody, of course, that all of our shows are brought to you by Suspense Magazine, so visit suspensemagazine.com. And please do not forget our anthology, Nothing Good Happens After Midnight, with Jeffrey Deaver, along with Reese Bowen and Hank Phillippe Ryan, Heather Graham, John Lasquois, uh, Linwood Barkley, and many others. So check out Nothing Good Happens After Midnight. But without any further ado, I would love to bring on our guest for the first time. I met her in Seattle at a PNWA conference uh, probably about five years ago, I would think, at this point. So, J.A. Jans, thank you so much for coming on to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing just fine, and I'm very happy to be here. And it's great to finally have you on. I mean, we, you, you know, you, you seem to write and have a book come out like every eight months because you've got three series going on, but we're so happy that Brady's back. So it's great to, to have you on, on the show finally. Well, I'm glad to be here. I, great. I feel it's been so long since my last hardback came out. That was Sins of the Fathers, a Beaumont that came out last year. Mm-hmm. And then just when it came out, COVID hit, right. and so pub days got moved, and I've been away for so long that now people are convinced that I'm either retired or dead. But, but I'm not. <laughs> or you're missing and endangered, which is the you know current <laughs> title of your latest book, so it kind of fits in with everything, I guess. Yes. <laughs> so, um, again, this book is very riveting, and it has a lot of emotional pulls that go on in this um, so tell everybody a little bit about what you put Joanna into this time. Well, for starters, my protagonists live complex lives. They, when when I first told my when I told a long ago editor that Joanna was going to get married, she said, "Oh no, you can't do that. She can't get married." Well, I'm sorry. My characters, my my detectives don't live solitary lives where all they have to worry about is feeding their ficus. And <laughs> since, since, he has, since she has kids, a time-consuming job, mm-hmm. and an, an unpredictable time-consuming job, and a, animals to feed, she needed to have somebody there to keep the home fires burning. And so... I brought Butch into the picture. If I had known that Butch was going to turn out to be her second husband and the father of two of her kids, I would have given him a better name. But I didn't know that when I, when I first when I met him in book number three. The, when I first met, this is this is the advantage of writing a series. You get to see characters evolve over time. And in the first scene in Desert Heat. Joanna is at home on High Lonesome Ranch with her mother and with her nine-year-old daughter, Jenny. And they're waiting for Joanna, <coughs> excuse me, Joanna's husband, Andy, to come home and take her out to celebrate their 10th anniversary while Joanna's mother, Eleanor, stays at home to babysit with Jenny. Well, Jenny is a 
bright little thing. And she's just had a touch of sex ed at school, and she has now cut it on her fingers and realized that there aren't quite enough months between her birthday and her parents' wedding day. And so she turns to her mom and says, was I a preemie? Well, of course, she, she was not a preemie. Uh-huh. It was the, the wedding was what was late. And that innocent question, without my realizing it, set the tone for numerous books in this series because Joanna Brady's mother, Eleanor, has always been torqued that her, mother, her daughter got knocked up in, when she was 17 and had this shotgun wedding. Of course, we don't find out until books later that Joanna's parents actually had an out-of-wedlock out child that was given up for adoption. So those things were all in the background of that scene without my knowing it. Well, now, in this book, we watched Jenny grow up, and she's now in her sophomore year at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff. And this book is as much about Jenny and her life as it is about Joanna and the complexities of her situation as she deals with a a first grader, a year-old baby, and and, uh, an officer-involved shooting in her department. Yeah, I mean, you you have it's a spider web kind of effect that you that you kind of take people on, but then when it kind of all comes down into into the end, everything kind of brings itself together. And I just have to know, you know, how much of a challenge is it for you to make sure that you get every thread working together to where at the end it's right there. Well, here's the way I do it. I, People tell me that I'm what they call an organic writer. Now, from what I know about yeah. organic food <laughs> is you do it without hormones or, or antibiotics. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I do, I do, I write without outlining. So what goes into the books is what comes into my head and into my heart. Mm-hmm. Because I write murder mysteries, I usually start with somebody dead and I spend the rest or nearly dead and I spend the rest of the book trying to figure out who did it and how come. So I write for the same reason readers read to find out what's going to happen. And if I outlined a whole book in advance, I would be bored to tears and I wouldn't have any reason to write it. <laughs> I I happen to know that my publishers like to have books that are 100,000 words long, give or take 5,000 words in either direction. Now, the reason for that magic 100,000 word number is that 100,000 word books fit in standard shipping boxes. (laughs) So it's all about the math. (laughs) So... When I'm writing, I count the words every day, mm-hmm. and I know how many words I've used, how many words I still have to use. I know from experience that the first 20% of a book is the hardest part to write. 
the interior of the book, the next 60% is sort of like slogging through mud. Mm -hmm. And then the last 20% is what I call the banana peel of the book. And by that point in the book, I finally know what the end is, and I need... I, I know how many words I have yet to use before I get all the people in the right place for the end of the book to happen. And that's, wow. that's how I do it. That's my magical formula. <laughs> that's a magical formula. Yeah, let's see. Um, but you still are putting the best 100,000 words on the pages. <laughs> and that's where the professionalism lies. <laughs> well, I, when I write... I aim for 95,000. So on give yourself a little bit of overage if you need to. Yes, because in in the course of doing the final edits and adding in those little stray bits of storyline that I may not have finished sorting out. True. Another yeah. 5,000 words will end up going into the manuscript. So if I aim for 95,000, I usually come in right on the money. <laughs> yeah. Now I wanted to talk, too, about a character that you brought in because, uh, you know, Beth Rankin, I mean, she's 16 years old. She's a freshman at university, so, you know, she's already, you know, ahead of her time, of course, homeschooled. So here's a character, again, when you're talking about, you know, Joanna and Jennifer and Eleanor and, and everybody in their lives, I mean, Beth's situation is very complex. So Beth's what, was, what, was the, what was the thought process behind Beth? Well, I write police procedurals. I didn't know that was what I wrote until I was three. Until somebody told you? <laughs> yeah. Somebody said, oh, you write police procedurals. And I said, really? Yeah. I thought I was writing murder mysteries. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I've never been in law enforcement. I'm not a cop. I'm not an attorney. Uh, everything I know about doing research, I learned when I was a librarian. Oh wow. <laughs> and, and I learned you know, I learned from being doing research how to do research. And so part of my research for writing these books is doing uh, is watching true crime on T V because I've learned how law enforcement agencies operate, how they how they approach a case and how they look for for information and for suspects and how they so do you watch that I've show watched, the first 48 oh of course i watched that's the first a great movie. one isn't it but, i love that show. but i i always i also watch the last 24 oh yeah i am i am a a real joe kenda homicide hunter oh yeah it. joe kenda you just and, put a book out too and actually, Joe Kenda and I have now become friends, which I think is incredibly <laughs> wonderful. Nice. But, but in the course of watching those, I watched uh, an episode of Web of Lies, which is how uh-huh. pe- people use the Internet to fool victims into thinking they're something they're not. And like one of those, yeah. Yes, and one of those dealt with a 16-year-old girl who was being uh, deceived by a man in his 30s into believing that he was 18 year, her 18-year-old boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And eventually he 
persuaded her to take naked photographs of herself, which he then threatened to post on the Internet. In the course of... In the course of just being a writer, years ago I met a lady. We were we were having a dinner with. I had never I had dealt with her in emails, but I hadn't had any in person contact. And my husband and I were having dinner with her someplace in Michigan, and she was telling us all about her fiance that they had chosen a uh, they picked out their wedding rings and they had chosen a condo and they were choosing their their uh, dish patterns and all of that stuff and then long into the discussion she mentioned that she had never met him in real life that they had met on the internet and we both looked at this woman who was a trained psychologist and said are you nuts (laughs) Obviously, obviously, yeah. And That's the thing, so, isn't it? It's like the profession doesn't mean that they're smart because they still act like every other normal weirdo at certain times. Doesn't make it so. Difficult. Our question was enough to sort of get her to stop and think. She hired a private detective, and it turned out that this guy had five other fiancés at the same time. So, in writing this book, those two experiences. The, the woman whose fiancé had multiple fiancés and this young, very young, naive girl being preyed on, those, those two things came together, and that's how I created Beth. Yes, she is very smart, but her domineering mother has protected her from everything out there in the real world. And so as soon as she has her own computer and her own Wi-Fi connection, she is a sitting duck, a sitting duck for that kind of criminal. Mm-hmm. And of course, Jenny, who's only two years wiser, two years older, is decades wiser. And Beth is fortunate that yep. Jenny ended up being her roommate. <laughs> and there it goes. And then you know, and so. And, of course, you know, something happens, and so the missing part, I mean, Beth gets, you know, something happens, she's lost and found again, and then everything starts, like you said, you know, like unraveling, and and you're bringing it all down into a head. But is it when you're thinking, and when you saw that show, and you started seeing how this was going to work in a character, and it was in, you know, Beth, was that then like, okay, this is definitely going to be a Brady novel? No, this is not going to no. be a Beaumont novel? No, I didn't no? have any idea that it was going to be a novel. That just went into the catalog no. of stuff that's in my head. It was, I saw that show years ago. Oh, but okay. It stayed, my, my husband says that my head is a wearing blender. <laughs> and that stuff goes into my head, it goes through the wearing blender, and it comes out <laughs> through my fingertips on the keyboard entirely different. And I, I can give you a good example of that. In, in the early 60s, mm-hmm. we were living in, on, the, on the Mexican border near Bisbee, and my sister had this little ranchette, and on it she had a horse named Warpaint, a cow named Shirley, a pig whose name is lost to the ethers, 
and an Australian shepherd named Smokey Joe. And of that group of animals, Warpaint was the smartest, and he knew that whenever it rained, the electric fence would stop working, and he'd let everybody out. Ah. When my when my sister came home, that one day that happened. My sister came home from work, and Smokey, an Australian Shepherd, could be counted up to help round up the pig and Shirley. But once Warpaint was out in the pasture, he was out in the pasture, and if you walked up to him with anything in your hand that resembled a rope or a halter, he would stay just out of reach. So one day that happened. My sister came home. She and Smokey rounded up Shirley, rounded up the pig, and then she went looking for war paint. Well, she was walking. She walked up to him with nothing in her hand, and she sort of snuggled up to him. And while he was nuzzling her, she reached up under her shirt pulled off her bra, wrapped it around his neck, and led him home. Okay. So that happened decades, uh, decades before I was a writer. But oh, that little nugget of information was still sitting in my head. Sits in the attic. Years, yep. years later, when I was writing Skeleton Canyon, Joanna Brady, number five. Way back. She is, she is pinned down by gunfire in Skeleton Canyon, she needs a diversion. And so what does she do? She whips off her bra and uses it as a slingshot to send pebbles in the other direction. Now, I cannot tell you how my daughter using her bra as a, a halter uh-huh. turned into Joanna Brady using her bra as a slingshot. But that's what but happens works. when things go through the wearing blender. But it works, doesn't it? Yes, it does work. I, I need to tell you about one of the other characters in Missing yeah. and Endangered because this was a character, so when I'm writing a book, mm-hmm. periodically one character will sort of rise up out of nowhere and capture Always. my attention. In Field of Bones, that character was a girl named Letitia. She, she turned into the centerpiece. Of Field of Bones, the uh, book so just the book right before this, yeah. Just before this, in this book, there is an officer involved shooting, and the guy who uh, apparently shot it, and and the officer is gravely wounded, and but he also he killed the guy with the gun, and so there's this huge brouhaha over over this officer-involved shooting. And in the process, Joanna is pulled into what appears to be, it, it seems like that whole situation grew out of a domestic violence, a, a, a relationship full of domestic violence. And, of course, the assumption in everybody's mind is the husband is the bad guy here. Mm-hmm. And then later on in the book, we find out that the kids involved in this event aren't even his kids. They're his stepkids. But the daughter, the little girl, the little, a little girl named Kendall, in Missing and Endangered, 
she captured my heart even more than than Beth Franken did because yep. she she is in a position where it's her responsibility to look out for her little brother mm-hmm. and to keep him safe from the constant parade of sketchy men her mother invites in and out of the house. And Kendall Kendall was the real heartbreaker for me in, in writing that story. Uh, I think she's going to have the same effect on my readers. That's why I said, I, I mean, I, the, the best word I could have thought of at the beginning was just riveting, because that's what this book is. I mean, there's, it's just riveting. I, I, it, it's, it's so packed with emotion and human drama and so much of that that, you know, it, it's, um, it's, it's fantastic. Well, thank you. I, yeah. Thank you very much. I, yeah. <laughs> my head is and, swelling even as we speak. <laughs> and, you know, and, so, and so the book comes out February 16th, so everybody knows. And then, just because, you know, you felt like, I guess it's, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, these books were probably not written during the pandemic um, because you, maybe at the beginning, because of how publishing works, you know, they were probably done. But then you decided, oh, why not? On June 1st, the next um, Ali Reynolds book comes out, Unfinished Business. So can you give us a little preview of that one? Because I'm sure Ali Reynolds fans are very excited to see this. Well, Ali Reynolds, uh, I had just finished writing uh, Missing and Endangered. I was just finishing it at the beginning of the pandemic. Okay. And for a while... The best I could do was write my weekly blog. I have a blog that posts every Friday on my Facebook page and also on my website. And it's sort of a, a discussion of what's going on in my life in that particular week. And for the first couple of months of, of the pandemic, it was, it, it was all I could do to write that. But then I finally got a grip and started writing Unfinished Business, which is the next Alley book. It has to do with uh, what was, has thought, was thought to be a long-resolved case where a young college graduate who was actually employed by Alley's now husband, in a, long before he met Alley, he had a business, a video game business in Seattle. And he hired this young college student to work for him shortly after Matteo Vega graduated from the University of Washington. But a few months in, Matteo takes his girlfriend. They go to a beach party uh, in Edmonds, Washington. They get in a big argument. They leave. And as they leave in the car, he stops at a stop sign. She exits his vehicle and ends up dead. And, of course, he's the boyfriend. He's presumed to be the killer. And eventually, his public defender convinces him that he's better off taking a plea deal to second-degree homicide than taking a chance and getting ending up with a life sentence. So he spends the next 17 years of his life, one year in jail and 16 years in prison, for a murder he didn't commit. Wow. Well, I could see 
the alley books are set in Arizona, but he was from Seattle, and I could see that this was a, essentially a cold case. And right. who should who should be dealing with cold cases in Seattle in his retirement years? But your friend of mine, J.P. Beaumont. Beaumont. And I thought this would be a perfect case for him to work on. So I negotiated a peace treaty between my two publishers, HarperCollins and Simon and & Schuster, to let my HarperCollins character make a cameo appearance in a in Allie Reynolds' book. Oh. And the Allie Reynolds books are written in the third person, often through multiple points of view. The Beaumont books are written in the first person, right. strictly through his point of view, through what he sees, hears, does, thinks. Mm-hmm. But I assumed that in this alley book, he would show up in the third person right along with everybody else. Huh. Well, as my Not mother him. would say, I had another think coming. Because as soon as I tried to write him in third person, hell no, he wouldn't go. And so, in this alley book, when Beaumont steps on stage, he steps on stage in all his cantankerous glory. And the thing about Bo is, within a couple of pages, I was back in his head, hearing his thoughts, seeing the world through his mm-hmm. often wry point of view. And I, I think readers of both series will really enjoy that. Now... The other question I have is, is is there any bit of the pandemic, did you decide to include any of that in this story? Because I'm wondering Absolutely. how much authors yeah. are going to do that with their stories. Well, no, I am, fortunately for me, my characters are still in 2018, and I don't have to deal with it. Good. I, okay. I, my characters are law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And this whole era where everything law enforcement does is evil and suspect is is, um, it's hard on law enforcement and it's hard on people who write police procedurals. I mean, of course, every occupation has bad apples. But that doesn't mean that the whole occupation is bad, and I think that there we are, need to remember that. There are actually bad apples in this story because yeah. the the prosecutor who was happy to offer Matteo Vega a plea deal rather than going to the trouble of trying to convict him, that's a bad apple. Yeah. And yeah. the and so yes, there are bad apples, but sure. heaven help us. There are good guys, and when we dial 911, we need a good guy to answer. So, you know, um, I mean, it's it's funny. Normally when you hear of a celebrity or whatever, or somebody rich, you hear them always doing something bad, but you never hear all the philanthropy work and the millions of dollars they do in trying to help people and fund things and do that. Like, you don't don't hear about that. They they don't – people, for some reason, like to focus and watch – negative TV and things like that. And I'm like, I, I would just rather watch Scooby-Doo because he's funny. 
Yes. He's funny. We, we've <laughs> He's def- funny. And I bought all the Scooby-Doo's on iTunes. Yep, I bought them all, and I still watch them, and I love the Scooby-Doo and the movies and all that stuff. So, yeah. I mean, I watch a lot of football on YouTube, old games. I just try to. I just can't handle the negative well, anymore because it's everywhere you look. No matter where you change the channel, it just seems like it's just too much negative for me. But, but I, me too. I turned off yeah. the news months ago. Yeah. yeah. I don't. I don't watch the COVID. You know, first everybody was going to die, and now everybody is going to die of the vaccine. And, and yeah, I, it's, <laughs> it's all bad news all the time. So. Yeah. I and I'll say, hey, I'm, I'm about three weeks from recovering from COVID. I had it. Freak way of gotten it. So I'm telling you, you can get it in a freak way that you didn't even think that was even possible getting it. It was just a freaky thing. And, you know, it, was it fun? Heck no, it wasn't fun. I couldn't, you know, can barely now smell and taste again. So I got some of that back. But I was very, you know, I was kind of sick for two days, really bad cold. And uh, it wasn't fun at all. So. But you're still yeah, here. I'm still here. You know, I'm still here. I, you know, how we got it was probably a very small viral load, so like enough to get it and to get us sick. So luckily we weren't, you know, somebody that could still be like 50 years old, but they're working as a healthcare worker and they're just getting pounded and then they get it because of the viral load, and that's probably much different than how we did. So, yeah. But, I mean, we're fine. My wife and I are fine. We're good. Well, the, the thing is what we've Now we've got the antibodies, so we're like, let's go travel. <laughs> <laughs> What we did last week was watch every episode of Escape to the Chateau and watch how how that couple tackled, you know, it's one thing to remodel a house. We remodeled houses while we were living in them, and that's tough. But if you remodel a castle while you're living in it, and every time you want to put in a pipe, you have to dig through three feet of rock wall. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> That's another remodeling. I mean, let's face it. What, what, and, and I'm sure, and I'm sure you've seen the movie, the best remodeling house movie ever, The Money Pit, right? <laughs> uh, actually, someone sent that to us when we were in the process of a six-month living <laughs> remodel in Tucson, and they, we found the, the previous owners they had installed a pizza oven oh. and had and had twisted the 220 wires together had twisted the 220 wires together for the dryer in a laundry room and what? hadn't hadn't put on any any wire nuts anything there were there were live wires under the carpet in the floor in the living room oh and my God. it was it was the money pit it was, and I restarted watching the Money Pit. Somebody sent it to us. They thought we'd enjoy it. And I told Bill, this isn't funny. This isn't funny it. anymore. <laughs> We're living it. It's not funny if you're living it. <laughs> it's not funny if you're living it. Yeah. But the escape to the chateau, if people are looking for something that is simply a bright spot, those two people are hardworking and creative and wonderful, and I just checked, and there, they had, of course, they were remodeling this chateau to be a wedding venue, and oh. they had weddings coming, and and just as they finished most of the work, then the pandemic hit, so they've oh. been homeschooling their kids, but it really is a wonderful show, and it will be a welcome addition to your Scooby-Doo. Nice. Library. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So jajance.com is your website, and that's the best place for everyone, of course, to find out all the information. And we just find out now, of course, that you have your weekly blog that's on there and your Facebook page. And if, if they are interested in sending me an email, my address is jajance at me.com. And oh. I respond to every email I get, including the one that came in tonight that said, why did you change the name of the decorator from book number four to a new name in book number whatever? I think it's 23 where the decorator's name changes. So I wrote to her and explained that between 1984 and now, my life has changed and I wanted to honor our interior decorator. <laughs> but I respond to every email. Nice. So, and so, do you use Facebook the most uh, social media platform? I have I have a pay, Facebook author page, and I don't always respond to the comments, but I read the comments on both okay. my Facebook page and also on the uh, on the uh, blog on my website. On your blog, I read cool. all the comments, but I will be doing a Facebook live event. Oh. for Poison Pen on the 16th of February when the book comes out because I'm old. My husband is even older, and the first time we can get appointments for a vaccine isn't until sometime in March, so we're not um, venturing out of the house. I don't blame you. I don't blame you. Yeah, stay in there. And, and, and that's not much, you know, I mean, it's been a year. I guess what's another month, right? <laughs> that's correct. What's another yeah. month? Yeah, because by this time... We all think that this is just how our lives are, so this is now our normal. So now to change it up in a month, it's like, oh, my God, that's something totally different now. <laughs> right. It will be, and we're all looking forward to it. So everybody, again, the book is called Missing and Endangered. It is the 19th and uh, Brady's series, and the book comes out February 16th. But don't forget, because coming on June the 1st is going to be the next in the Allie Reynolds series, and that is Unfinished Business with a cameo appearance of your favorite Beaumont will be in that one. So make sure you check that out. Judy, we want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure to finally speak with you and get you on. We have to do this more often. So let's not be strangers and let's get this going again. That'll be fine. I'm here and I'm available. And now I know your email address and I will have to email you this directly because <laughs> <laughs> I know I'll get a response back even if it's, no, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. It's been Thank fun. you. All right. 